Well, good morning. Um, it's really nice to be here. Um, thank you, Rocky Mount Baptist Church, for having me come out. I think I should also thank Dr. Wheeler. Um, he is my boss at Liberty University, but uh, more than that, he is a friend of mine. He is an older brother in the Lord. He is a mentor to me, and really, in, in many respects, like so many, he's a, um, he's a spiritual father. And so I'm very thankful for Dr. Wheeler's life. Um, I'm thankful that he yeah, basically offered me to come out here, too. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at five verses, nothing more, nothing less. 2 Corinthians, obviously, is right after 1 Corinthians, just in case, maybe there's some new believers here, they don't, they don't know that. We're going to be in chapter 2, we're going to look at five verses from verses 12 through 17 this morning, and that's, that's it. But before that, why don't we pray um, that the Lord would honor his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that your word is sharp, that it is two-edged, that, as you say in Isaiah 55, won't return unto you void, that it goes out like the rain and it accomplishes its purpose. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you would honor your word, something that you say in the Psalms, in Psalm 138, you hold even higher than your own holy name. God, we ask that you would minister to our spirits, that you would convict us of our sin, and that after this morning, that we wouldn't only be challenged by your word, but we would even leave changed. So help us, we pray, understand these things. Help us, we pray, to really grow in Christ and his grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the book of Corinthians really doesn't need any sort of introduction. I think we all know um, the many vices that plague the Corinthian church. We also know that Paul, starting in Acts 18, spent about 18 months in Corinth on his second missionary journey. He wrote four letters to the Corinthians, two of which only really were canonized. The first letter, excuse me, the second letter, which became 1 Corinthians, and then the fourth letter, which now becomes 2 Corinthians, which is our letter this morning. He visited the church there in Corinth about three times. However, the church of Corinth was a very, very hard church. It wasn't like the church of Philippi. There wasn't great joy. Paul would use the term joy in Philippi over 50 times. Christ would be used over 15 times. I mean, the church in Philippi really refreshed the Apostle Paul. Corinth did the exact opposite. Corinth was plagued by many things, many vices. There was unlawful communion practices. There was chaos and the abuse of the Holy Spirit. There was sexual immorality. So gross was sexual immorality in Corinth that Paul says that shouldn't even be a named among you because it's not even named among the heathen. Incest, slander, ineptness, and a complete void in spiritual leadership was really the mantra of the Corinthian church. Furthermore, if you turn with me to chapter 11 of this book, we're going to find another insight into the Apostle Paul's ministry there in Corinth. In chapter 11... Starting in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Am I talking like a madman? I have far greater labors, far more imprisonments. 
with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and clothes and exposure, And apart from all of these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul would say that the greatest trial that he faced as a pastor, the greatest trial he faced as a minister, wasn't the physical beatings of life and trial. It was the anxiety that pressed upon him, the anxiety that he experienced because of his love and devotion for the church. And we're going to look at this morning Paul would even leave the evangelical mission field because of the church, because of believers, because of his brothers and his sisters in Christ. In fact, going back to chapter 2, even in chapter 1 it would say that Paul basically wanted death to happen. Paul almost wished he could die because of how much he was going through. So this morning, we're looking at Paul the Apostle not in a joyful type of emotional thing, but we're looking at a man who's completely plagued with depression and anxiety, plagued with doubt and confusion about what is going on in his churches that he planted. But it's funny, we're also going to look at how even through that, Paul had such a perspective, such a perspective. So with that... We go into our five verses this morning. That is kind of the backdrop of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, really the whole entire chapter. Verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death unto death, to the other a fragrance from life unto life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we were not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Back to verse 12, he says, when I came to Troas, Troas was in northwest West Asia, now Turkey. It was on the Aegean Sea. It was a port city. To the southwest, across the Aegean Sea, you would find Corinth. To the northwest, kind of in the corner there of Macedonia, you would have Philippi and Thessalonica and other districts that Paul would minister to. We know in this first verse, actually these first two verses, verse 12 and 13, a few things. Number one is that when he went to Troas to preach the gospel, even with a door open to him. Isn't that great for Paul? 
Isn't it awesome when the Lord just kind of brings into your life just an opportunity to minister? It's almost like you didn't have to do anything. You just had to stand there and smile and be a Christian and somebody wants to get saved. Tell me about Jesus. You're smiling. Wow. Great. I appreciate that open door, Lord. For Paul, it was very much like that in Troas. He was being used by God very, very openly in the public square. He was being able to preach the gospel. Men and women were being saved. People were turning from their sin and turning to Christ. What an amazing experience for Paul. And honestly, what an amazing experience for any minister who's able to walk into any type of venue and preach the gospel and people just get saved. A revival would happen, right? But look what happened to Paul, even with an open door. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. What's going on, Paul? What are you, what are you doing? You're taking leave of them. Who's the them? Well, the them is those who are in Troas who are being saved. The them are those who are receiving Christ. The them was going to be the new church plant in Troas. Paul is leaving them. Why? Why would Paul be leaving this open door, this mission field, this this pure, absolutely a wonderful experience for the apostle and minister of the gospel? Because of Titus. Because of his love for a brother? Because of the Macedonian church because of Corinthians, that he would leave such an open door to go for them? Isn't that a little peculiar? That Paul the apostle would leave the mission field that he was really commissioned on to to really do, and he would even say, woe is me if I don't preach Christ. He would leave them for the love of the saints? Paul's concern for the lost, listen, Paul's concern, was, was for, Paul's concern for the lost was overridden by his love for the church. Paul's concern for the lost was overridden by his love for the church. One authority states, it is not our love for the lost, nor is it our love of this fallen world that distinguish you and I as believers but it is our love for one another. No doubt our Lord Jesus would say that very thing. In John 13, Jesus would say, this is a new commandment I'm giving you, that you love one another. So by it all will know you belong to me. If we are zealous to speak about the gospel, but we are quick to slander our brother, something is wrong with our gospel. If we are ready with all expenses to host rallies and tent revivals, but we are unwilling to visit hospitals and widows and orphans who name the name of Christ, something is wrong with our budget. If we are so humbly willing to proclaim the gospel, but live not with humility amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, something is wrong with our proclamation. If we are heralding a message with no visible, no sensory content, we are not really proclaiming a message. Paul was bereft 
of his brother. And so he went away from the mission field. So he went away from preaching the gospel because of the church. Verse 14, he says, but thanks be to God. (laughs) Thanks be to God. How, How could you say that, Paul? How could you say, but thanks be to God, when we just looked at all of the sufferings, when we just listed all of the vices of Corinth, when we just looked at all of the things that you're going through, how could you say, but thanks be to God, especially to the Corinthian church? Because he says, in Christ, we are always being led in a triumphal procession. What a perspective. What a perspective. Paul had a perspective on the sovereignty of God. Paul could honestly say that God was always leading him. God was always taking control of Paul's life and directing his life wherever God would have him go to do the mission that God put him on. Even if Paul is to leave an open door that the Lord seemed to open, God was still in control of Paul's life and leading him. And he was leading him in such a way that there was a triumph. And we're going to look at that Roman term in a minute. But I wonder for you and I, was there ever a moment in your life, or even maybe now you're thinking about a time when I shouldn't have left? Man, the Lord was doing something. Maybe in that relationship. Maybe in that position at that job. Maybe at that church. Maybe in that country. Wherever you might have been and you really sensed that the Lord was using you, but all of a sudden, plans changed. And now you're living a life that maybe you think is secondary to that. Maybe you're discouraged about how your life has turned out and you're thinking, man, is really God leading me? Maybe you're walking even in Rocky Mount here and you're thinking, geez, if only I was in Southern California with that church doing that thing. But here I am, married to that person. The perspective we all need to have is God's sovereignty. Is it true that all things work out for the good for those who are called according to his purpose? Of course it is. Is it true in Philippians chapter 2 it says that God is willing and doing his good pleasure in and through us? Of course it is. So then we as believers have to understand that in all circumstances, in all instances of your life, no matter where you are, you can say that God is leading you even when it doesn't feel like that. Even when it doesn't seem like that. Even when you look at the past history of your life and you think, how in the world did I get here? Look what I was doing. Look what I was accomplishing. Look at my youth. Look at all of those things. Even now, God is leading your life. One would say the strength of one's life is found in the correct view of God's sovereignty. The correct view of God's sovereignty. Paul had that. And that's what we're seeing this morning. You know, I, um, I was in the military for about four and a half years before coming to Liberty. My wife and I started a home group in Kansas, Fort Riley, Kansas. And um, if we didn't receive a particular scholarship from the United States Army, we would have probably gone out of the Army, planted a church there, We were seeing great things happen in the military. 
Um, the Lord was, was doing some incredible things with our home group. But I got a scholarship. So I came to Liberty and um, finishing a degree. And we thought, you know, if surely the largest Christian university in the world, right? The largest Christian university in the world. Surely if an opportunity would come, this would be the place. And if it didn't come, well, we would go back into the active duty. Now as a commissioned officer, we would go do our thing, continue the ministry that the Lord was doing through us, and call it a day. But the Lord completely obliterated that plan. Completely. In the form of Dr. Wheeler. (laughs) Dr. Wheeler offered me a position to work on his team, and there I stay. And therefore, I will ever stay until the Lord moves us on elsewhere. I've committed to that. But it would be easy for me to look back on what the Lord was doing in the United States Army and think, hmm, why did I leave? Why did I choose the reserves now? I mean, all of the pay and all of the benefits and all of the ministry that God was doing through the Seegers in the United States. Whoa, wow, wow, great. And now at Liberty, I mean, we are being so used at Liberty. I mean, the shepherd office is completely just like a turntable. I mean, ministry is overflowing. We are being stretched for Christ at Liberty University. And it's incredible to see that. But it is not easy. If I don't have a correct view of God's sovereignty, I could really, really run amok of my perspective. Paul had that perspective. He goes on to say that he is leading us, not always, but also in a triumphal procession and through us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The Roman triumph was a very wonderful sight to, to behold, and Paul is not sparing his terminology when he, when he basically issues that word triumph. What it was is a Roman general would go out, and if he killed at least 5,000 enemies of the Roman Empire, he expanded the Roman Empire by one territory, he would have earned what was called a general's triumph. He would be marched back to Rome on his way to the Circus Maximus. He would be on a golden chariot pulled by four horses. All of his brigades would be behind him as soldiers marching in all of their glory. The senators and the politicians would go before the general, and they would lead him, the general, all the way up to Caesar to hail Caesar. And from and behind the general, there would be the captors of the, of the war. And people would line the streets for this procession. And they would just throw roses at the general as he, was, as he went by, just throwing a whole bunch of roses. And as the, as the soldiers marched through the streets, they would begin to crush on all of the roses. And the smell and the perfume from crushed roses would begin to basically light up Rome. But even more so, the priests behind the general would be waving incenses that would be offered to the god uh, Jupiter. And so all of Rome would begin to smell like victory. All of Rome would begin to smell like this aroma that the general has conquered. That the general has won the day for Rome and the expansion of the empire. Hurry, run to the street. Hurry, grab your roses. Here comes the general. And you would just smell this in the empire. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul is saying that I can give thanks to God because look, we are part of that Roman procession. We are the aroma that would, be, would have been spelled in the Roman Empire, but we now are that as believers in Christ to a dying world. 
we are going not to hail Caesar, but we are going to hail Jesus Christ. But he says that we are this aroma in verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Like I said, in front of the general, there would be those captors in front and behind. Those captors who were in front of the general would actually be receiving pardon from Caesar. They wouldn't be going to execution. They wouldn't be going to exile. And those captors behind the general, they were actually going to be executed. So the scent for them as captors as they walked in shackles on this procession, either they were, they were content, oh wow, we're going to be pardoned, or they were terrified because they were going to be given over to the Colosseum where they would have been killed or they would have been sent exile or somewhere else to simply die. Paul says that as Christians, we are that aroma to the world. To some, we are, we are the incense of life, and to others, we are the incense of death. He says, for those who are being saved and for those who are perishing, verse 16. For those who are being saved, how is it that we as Christians can be an aroma to those who are being saved? Well, I believe that if you go into another church denomination, in fact, if you go to Liberty University, many denominations are represented there at that church. And if you have a particular way of doing things, this is how we do business. Some lift up their hands in worship, some put their hands behind their back, some take offerings in the beginning of the service, some leave boxes at the back of the window, and if we go into those services and begin to criticize and begin to have a contempt for those forms of Christianity, I wonder if there's something wrong with the scent you are bearing. Because to those other brothers and sisters, we should be an aroma to them as well. Much like they should be an aroma to us. And listen, I am not very charismatic. I am not one to lift my hands up all the time in worship. I am not one to hear very loud music that I can't even understand my own mouth when it's moving. But you get that at liberty. <laughs> am I going to stand there in absolute criticism all the time as thousands of believers are gathered worshiping Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language is going to be represented in eternity, people. And so we need to have the aroma of those who are being saved. But we're also going to have an aroma to those who are perishing. What does that mean? Well, I'm certainly not going to stand in the pulpit of the evangelism professor at Liberty University and lecture anybody on evangelism. But I do believe the scripture teaches a type of evangelism that I call lifestyle evangelism. The terms light and salt, some of you are familiar with that, that Jesus would say you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. Light exposes, salt preserves. Looking at this morning, we are the aroma of Christ. We're going to be a living, we are a living epistle. Paul would also say known and read by all men. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 4 onward to chapter 5, Paul will say over six times, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way. Why? Why are we something that is so visible? Listen, salt and light and a living epistle and an aroma and, and walking a certain way, what do those things all have in common? 
they do not speak. When is the last time your salt started talking to you? Maybe Thanksgiving, that happens around your house, not mine. When you are walking a certain way, just by your conduct, you are simply walking a certain way. You are not chattering as you go. So there should be a certain way in which you bear Christ in your life that people can see that holds them, listen, accountable. Your life, in so many ways, should be displaying the gospel that it holds perishing men and women accountable. Just like as the priests would be waving the incense in the Roman triumph, they knew that just by the smell of that, they were on their way to get their head chopped off. Or be sent to the Colosseum to be ripped apart by lions and beasts and things like this. So what happens when you walk into your workplace? What happens when you go home for the holidays? What happens when you go to that place and this place? What is the aroma that people are smelling? I would pray that it is one of Christ. And for those who are perishing, it should be quickening them to ask you, why are you so different? It should be one that is quickening people to ask, why, why can I have that in my life? I want that. And no doubt I would say that in the military, for those of you maybe who have served, you really don't have to do a whole lot in the United States military to shine for Christ. You don't. If you simply are uncompromised, you bear salt, you bear light, man, people are going to notice why are you not saying and doing a some things. It's a wonderful, easy mission field, to be honest with you. But that's how it should be everywhere. Now, of course, the people are going to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, we're, not, we're not supposed to just be going blasting people with the Bible, and certainly I'm not saying that. We're not supposed to be condemning people, and certainly I'm not saying that. I'm certainly not saying go and until somebody act, like, comes groveling at your feet, tell me about Jesus because you look so holy. I'm not saying that. Somebody would say, well, wait a minute, what about Jesus? You know, he was the friend of sinners and tax collectors. Yeah, well, demons came to Jesus, right? Sick came to Jesus. The lame came to Jesus. Yes, the tax collectors came to Jesus. Adulterers came to Jesus. But they all knew who he was. They all knew that he was the Messiah. They all know that he was the son of God. And so for us as believers, do people know you're even a Christian? Is your friendships with the world such that they don't even know, you don't even look different. You, you act like the world, you look like the world, you watch what the world watches. You are essentially, in so many ways, are living like the world. There should be a difference of the Christian, born-again, regenerated believer's life and one who is going to perish. That is lifestyle evangelism. And so I would encourage all of us, myself included, to really look into our lives and see how we might be that aroma, how we might be that living epistle, how we might truly be the salt, be the light, so that when people see us, they would come to us and say, why are you so different? Why do you love me like you do? Why are you so kind to me when I cannot stand you? Well, I would say 
that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing or foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is life to those who are being saved. I'd like to close with this verse, verse 17. For we are not like so many, many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He uses the Greek word polus kapuleo. Polos meaning many, kapuleo literally meaning retailers. Paul is saying that there are many people who are simply selling the word of God. There are many people out there who are, who are making this pulpit or, or that ministry an avenue in which to make profit. It should maybe quicken all of us to be a little, not afraid, but certainly questioning. Paul uses the word many. Are we to say that in all of our churches and in every single pulpit that that man who is proclaiming the word of the Lord is absolutely not a false teacher? Paul was exposing all of that as he was writing the letter to the Corinthians. So what does that mean for you and I? We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be examining ourselves like the Bereans, the scriptures, to see if these things are true or not. We need to be testing those spirits, the Bible says. You know, being at a university where there are, there are PhDs as there are pennies in people's pockets, it can be very intimidating to speak about the things of God. It can be very intimidating to think about the things of Scripture. But if we give in to fear, if we give in to intimidation simply by somebody's letters, how are we to examine them to know if they know what they're talking about when it comes to Scripture? Pastor Chuck Smith, who is now dead, of Calvary Chapel, maybe you know of him, he's in the 1970s, the Jesus people. He had a slogan for his church, Calvary Chapel, simply teaching the Bible simply. All of us should be studying and simply reading the Bible simply. And that's really all you have to do. <laughs> to know God more, to know his word more, to understand the things of truth more. Well, this morning we looked at a few things, one of which was we are to be an aroma to those who are being life, and we are an aroma to those who are perishing. I'd like for you, if you can, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Isaiah 53. One of the major prophets of the Bible. It's a rather large book there, maybe the middle. Before the minor prophets, there are 12 of those. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him beaten, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we have been healed. By the way, that is not a healing from all physical ailments. That is a healing from sin. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that was before its shears, it was silenced. So he opened not his mouth. That is the gospel. The gospel must be spoken in terms of judgment. The gospel must be spoken in terms of affliction. The gospel must be spoken in terms of suffering because it was Jesus Christ who did it. Furthermore, God was going to say in this very chapter that it pleased him to crush Jesus Christ. It pleased Yahweh to crush him. Because we serve a very holy God who cannot stand the presence of sin. And so Jesus Christ was offered up as a propitiation to literally stand in the gap because of you, because of your sin, because God so loved the world. But simply to say that God loves you, be merry, be happy, repent of your sin, is not a proper gospel. Turn with me lastly to the book of John, the gospel of John. And I promise I will conclude with this. John chapter 3, we all know this passage very well, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but would have eternal life. That's phenomenal, by the way. For God did not send his own Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, everybody seems to stop there for some reason. There is the John 3, 6 passage, Tim Tebow, well done with your football playing days. Great. We stop there. But verse 18 says something also. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Skip down to verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen to this. But the wrath of God remains upon Him. If I were to ask you this morning, what are you you saved from? What are you being saved from? Some of them may use, well, I'm saved from my sin. I'm saved from those past things I did. I, 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 I'm remorsed over those things. I'm saved from those. That is true. Some will say, well, I'm being saved from hell. I don't want to spend eternity in condemnation and, and Gehenna and, and all of that lake of fire, worm does not die type of stuff. Fire is not quenched. That's true as well. But really what you're being saved from is the wrath of Almighty God. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. If you walk out that door this morning and you have not received the Son of God, 
If you have not received the free gift, the free message, the freedom that comes in Christ, the wrath of God remains upon you. The Bible also says that tonight your soul might be required of you. I hope you understand that if you go into eternity without the propitiation, the blood of Christ, you are not standing before harps and fairies. Furthermore, you're not going to be ushered right into hell either. You will be standing before a brooding man of war. Because the wrath of God still presides upon you because Jesus Christ isn't standing before you, as the author of Hebrews would say, as a great high priest. And so if you have not received the gospel, I am pleading with you, listen to me, receive it, believe it, repent of your sin, escape from the wrath of God that is going to come and soon will come and completely vindicate all things to himself, the Bible says. I will be down here in front if you want to come talk about the gospel, if you have questions about today's message, um, if you need prayer for anything. Thank you so much, Rocky Mountain, for having me here. Um, I know Dr. Wheeler is so pleased with all of you and, and the work that's going on and, and through here at Rocky Mountain Baptist Church. Thank you very much.